This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book that reveals to us life, eternal life. It reveals to us the origin of the earth. And Lord, we thank you that you have answers to the questions of the origins. And not only that, that we can find answers to some of the objections that maybe the evolutionists would raise. I pray that you would bless us now as we look into the subject of creation and evolution. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, one of the things, obviously, the generally accepted belief in regular secular society throughout Europe, North America, and really the world, is the theory of evolution. And so some people may be thinking, can't we, you know, you're in school and you, you're, you, you have your biology course, you're, and you're thinking, can't we somehow harmonize the teachings of evolution with our beliefs? I mean, we, we look kind of, you know, strange believing that the earth is very young and not, you know, 4.6 billion years old. Can't we harmonize uh, evolution with the Bible? The trouble is, if we're going to really believe the scriptures, we can't harmonize the two. You say, well, why not? The reason is, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the Bible says these words. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so that death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. You say, Chad, what does that have to do with creation or evolution? Now think about this. It says, that by one man, sin came into the world. And what came as a, a result of man coming into the world? Death by what? Sin. So death is a result of what? Sin. So was there any death, according to the Bible, before sin, yes or no? There was no death before sin. Now, according to evolution, was there death before sin, yes or no? According to evolution. Now, think about it. According to evolution, uh, there was, you know, everything initially came from nothing. But once you had the earth, you had the amoeba or the single-celled organism, and that divided and it died. And that divided and it died. And then it slowly grew up into a sea creature, and that died millions and millions of times, and it slowly grew legs. And it slowly grew out of the ocean and died and died and it grew and, and it changed over countless millennia. And as a result, we slowly come about with humanity today. We had monkeys that slowly became extinct and now humanity is here. Now, according to that worldview, there was sin and not sin, there was death and death actually was a part of the process that brought about man. But according to the Bible, Man's sin brought about the very first death. You follow? So the point is we can't, we can't fit evolution and creation together. If we're going to fit these two things together, we have to let go of some of the tenets of the Scripture. We have to let go of some of the Bible. But we're going to see that there's no need to let go of the Bible. Actually, we need to let go of our faith in evolution. And we're going to discover that a belief in evolution is purely a faith-based practice regardless of what the scientists would typically have us believe. Some time ago, Time Magazine had a cover, and the caption on the cover was these three words, Is God dead? Is God dead? 
the perspective is, is that we now live in a time where, where we no longer have a need to believe that there is this immortal God, this eternal God, and we have no reason to believe that He was the creator of all things because now we have an understanding that everything could have come about by random chance. Now, is this actually true? Bertrand Russell was a famous philosopher and mathematician. He was a British philosopher and mathematician. And he was, he was an, a staunch skeptic. Now, somebody once asked Bertrand Russell, they said, if you meet God after you die, now he didn't believe in God, but they said, if you meet God after you die, what will you say to him to justify your unbelief? What will you say to him to justify the fact that you didn't believe in him? And Bertrand Russell's answer was, I will tell him that he did not give me enough what? Evidence. Bertrand Russell, this skeptic, said that God did not give him enough evidence to believe in the scriptures or in his existence in general. Not necessarily the scriptures, but just his, his existence. Now, the question is this. Is there so much evidence to believe in evolution that we don't actually need to believe in God? That evolution is a fact, uh, you know, creation is just a cute story of history. This is what we're going to look into. But before we actually look into evolution, we just want to ask a simple question. What is faith? What is faith? Now, let me ask you a question. Is faith a scientific or a religious word? Is faith a scientific or a religious word? You answer me. It's a religious word, right? I mean, clearly it's a religious word. Uh, now, let's, if it's a religious word, then we need to have a religious definition. We need to get a religious definition since it is a, inherently a religious word. So let's find out. The Bible actually gives a definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We take this last part, and faith is believing you have evidence for something that you have never what? You've never seen. So if you believe in something that you have never ever seen before, according to the Bible, you have what? You have faith. You see that. So if you didn't see something, but you believe you have evidence for it, you are following that belief by, not by science, according to the definition of faith. You are following by faith. Now, this, this is a very interesting thought in the context of evolution. Now, there's a fallacy amongst evolutionists. One of the, one of the teachings of evolutionists many times is, or you'll meet, if, if you, have you ever talked with a skeptic, someone who didn't believe in God? And they say, you have faith, I live by science. Have you ever heard someone say something like that? You all have faith. I have facts. Now, let's actually test that. Is that true? They are living by science, and we're living by faith. I want to, I want to suggest to you that they're actually wrong, that they have faith, and we also have faith. It is two different faiths. It's an issue of faith, not of actual hard scientific evidence. And you'll see this as we go through. So the question we're asking is, do scientists have faith? Now, remember, faith is believing in something that you have never what? Seen. So if you believe you have evidence for something you've never seen, that means you have faith, right? Very simple. 
We're not trying to get, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. We could go into way more details, but this, if, if you understand the basics, you'll be able to see through the arguments of evolutionists on your own. You won't need to hear all the objections. I can go through, we'll go through a bunch of objections in the second, in the second message. But the point being, if you get the foundation, you will be able to at least see for yourself through some of the lies of evolution. So let's begin at the very essence of evolution, and that all starts in the very beginning. And for the beginning of evolution, we go all the way back to what? To what? What's it called? The Big Bang. we got to start the Big Bang. Now, this is taken from Discover Magazine. Now, this is a secular, a non-Christian magazine or a periodical. Now, in this magazine, uh, the, the cover story asks the question, where did, we where did everything come from? Meaning everything. Where did the universe come from? And at the bottom, it's hard to read there, but it has this caption. And if we blow it up, this is actually, and this is the legitimate teaching of evolution. I'm not making this up. Notice what it says. This is the teaching of where everything came from. The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero. Nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. Now, according to evolution, there was a time and this is what the literal, I, I actually could have left the, the slides up, but I have a slide, I mean, from a science textbook, and it simply says, in the beginning, there was no time, space, matter, or energy. There was nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. And then, out of that nothingness, there was an explosion. Now, let me ask you a question. Did anybody see the explosion? Who did? Who? You saw it? <laughs> okay. Yes. What's that? Oh, yeah. Okay. You've seen explosions. Yes. Okay. Yes. You, yeah. You've seen. Was Serbia? Was it Serbia or Croatia? Bosnia. I'm sorry. Sorry. You told me that. Yeah. Bosnia. So they've seen explosions, but they didn't see the Big Bang, right? They weren't there at the Big Bang. I didn't know what you were going to say, but I get you now. Now, Think about this. Nobody saw the Big Bang. So if you believed you had evidence for the Big Bang, according to the Bible, you have what? Faith. So the very beginning, the foundation of evolution is not science, but it is actually what? It's faith. So an evolutionist begins his belief system on a foundation of great faith. I actually, in, in a sense, I could, you, you could admire an evolutionist for having such faith. That absolutely everything, look, look around, look at me, look at yourself. We all came from what? Nothing. Does that take a little bit of faith to believe? Okay, so the foundation, of, now check this out. Now let's ask the scientists to tell us about it. Now, I, here's, now the, here's the thing, when you go to school, you have been tricked. You say, no, they didn't trick me, they tricked me. As a child, I believe that scientists were non-biased that they only cared about the facts. I actually believed that. And you were taught the same thing, both on television and in your science classroom. And you'll see in the textbooks, it says it's a fact that everything came from nothing, and they act like they know how it happened. But I'm going to show you an honest scientist, just an honest scientist from a secular magazine who talks about the beginning. This is taken from New Scientist. This is not a Christian magazine at all. This is a secular magazine. And in New Scientist magazine, this particular scientist says, 
uh, might be a little hard to read. He says, don't let the cosmologists. Now, the cosmologists are those who are basically uh, looking for the origins of the universe. They're looking for the origins of everything and the, how order came about. Now, he responds to this idea of the Big Bang and how it could have happened by saying, don't let the cosmologists try to kid you on this one, on the Big Bang. He said, they have not got a clue either, meaning they don't have a clue how it could have happened. They don't have a clue how nothing could become something. He goes on to say, despite the fact that they do, are doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves and others that this is really not a problem. This, he's, he's, he's kind of quoting this, these uh, you know, Big Bang theorists. He says, in the beginning, they will say, there was nothing, no time, space, matter, or energy then there was a quantum fluctuation from which, and then he stops and he says, whoa, stop right there. You see what I mean? First there is nothing, then there is something. And the cosmologists try to bridge the two with a quantum flutter. You know what a quantum flutter is? Nothing. They made it up. What happens is they have to make up big words to explain something that nobody's ever seen and doesn't exist. But when we use big words, it sounds like it must be true. Because, I mean, they made up a big word. It must be true, right? You don't make up words about things that don't exist. But yet these things are presented as solid fact, as if scientists know how nothing could become something. Now, we would call nothing becoming something a miracle, right? And an honest scientist will say the same thing. We don't have a clue how the beginning came. We don't have a clue how the universe began. We just don't know. So let's go forward. Let's, so then, so the, the basis of evolution is, is a faith-based uh, religion, really, more, more than science, because it's a philosophy. It is not something that actually involves legitimate science. Sure, they, but you might say, but Chad, they have evidences because the, the universe is spreading out and dissipating. Now, the reality is, so you say, okay, so that's an evidence. So it's an evidence for something that you never have seen, which according to the Bible is faith, right? So it is faith, regardless. Even if you think you have evidence, it's faith. If you haven't seen it, it's faith. So now the question we ask is, is the Big Bang science or faith? You tell me. It, it's faith. According to the definition of faith, it is faith. It is not science because nobody can actually replicate it. Nobody can, you know, test it. You can say, well, I see some evidence, but you can't replicate it. There's nothing to do to actually prove this. Now, there's new, new definitions of science, obviously. When, when I was young, science was told to be something that could be replicated, tested. It could be falsified. But now, that, now it's more of a, just a philosophy, at least in many. Now, there's true science, no question that's actually studied and verified and replicated in the laboratory, but certain things that are slipped into the scientific realm are nothing more than faith. So let's go on. Let's just, we'll give them that, okay, so your miracle happened. This, we'll give you that part of your faith, but let's go a little bit for, forward. What about life from non-life? So we have this big rock floating in the universe, and it has water on it, and we call it today planet Earth. So you have this rock, and there's no life on it, and there's water sloshing around, and uh, then you, know, you have rains, and you have lightning, and all of these things. How did life come about from non-life? That's the question. Now, an honest scientist will tell you, we don't really know. I mean, yeah, we have guesses. Maybe you know, lightning hit the hit the water and and somehow sparked life into some uh, you know these chemicals that came together and and somehow it just it, it began life on planet Earth some long time or however. But nobody really knows. Number one, 
regardless of what they say, did anybody see it, yes or no? No, so according to that, it would be what? Faith. But don't, don't take my word for it. Notice, we look at this in this particular article. We notice it, the article is called Born Lucky. And in the article, we have this you know, little caption here. And it says, against all the odds, life established itself remarkably quickly on Earth. Does this tell us anything about where it began? Yes, says theoretical physicist Paul Davies, and the answer is out of this world. Now notice what theoretical physicist, this scientist, has to say about the beginning of life, or at least a theoretical physicist, I should say. What he has to say about the origin of life on Earth. His simple answer is nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organize themselves into the first living cell. Now, an honest scientist at the top will just be honest with you. They will say, even Richard Dawkins, the greatest skeptic in the world today, this British skeptic, when asked, how could it have happened? Can you prove that life came about from non-life? Can you prove how this could happen? And he will be honest and tell you, we don't know. We don't know. But do they believe that it did happen, yes or no? And they, yes, they do believe it, but they believe it not based upon the fact that it's science and it was tested, you know, we can prove it in the laboratory. They say, we don't know. We don't know how it could have happened. But they'll have these tests. I wish we had time to go into the Miller-Urey experiment and show, you know, the, the errors of this. We could easily go into these things. We just don't have time. But the reality is we have never, even as human beings with our intelligence, been able to create life from non-life. We, we can't do it. At least presently, we have no ability of doing it. So the point is, the scientists will say, we don't know. Now, in the textbooks, you won't be taught that. You'll be taught it's quite simple. Oh, sure, it could have happened. We see how it could have happened in the past. They'll speak this way like it's a fact. But they are only believing, not based on science, but based upon faith. Faith in what their teachers told them. Faith in what their professors told them. Faith in what the textbooks told them. But a belief in something they have never seen. Let's go forward. This is Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle. He was the man who coined the term the Big Bang, meaning he's the guy who came up with the name the Big Bang. Now, speaking, I, I, I took out some of the slides just because it was very complex and I thought the translation would be terrible. I mean, not that your fault, but it's, even what he's saying is hard to understand. So the point being translation would make it very difficult. But nevertheless, um, basically he talks about, now he, he's an evolutionist, he's dead now, but he was an evolutionist. He's the guy who coined the term the Big Bang. And yet, when he looked at life from non-life, when he talked about the probability of it happening by chance, this was his, his response to it. He said these words. The chance, right here, the chance that higher life forms might have emerged in this way is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a, an airplane from the materials therein. Do you understand what he's saying? This evolutionist is saying the, the chance that life came about from non-life and slowly these little creatures grew up and became you and me so we could talk here today. He said the chance that that would happen excuse me, is similar to the fact of imagining a tornado. Do you, do you have tornadoes in Europe? I think they have them in Russia, don't they? Do, they, do you know if they have them in Russia? Maybe not. We, got, we have them in the United States. I've seen one. I've got the opportunity. To, my wife and I were driving down the road, and we saw a tornado right on the highway in front of us. She got a picture of it. 
We didn't get any video, just picture. But nevertheless, so we're driving. So the point being, you got. So imagine now this tornado. It's, I mean, it's crazy. You know, maybe extreme fast winds, and as it's blowing through, it goes through a junkyard, and it's spinning and spinning and spinning. And when the when the tornado stops, the broken cars and broken glass and and wires and metal had somehow spontaneously organized themselves into an airplane. Now. It wouldn't just have to be an airplane because it would have to actually somehow be working, right? You'd have to have fuel in the tanks. You'd have to have the propellers moving because it has to be able to do its job, right? So think about this. These things randomly came together. Now, in science class, we make it out to be very simple. But is it such a simple thing? The top scientists, they're honest about it. The top scientists will say, you know, we don't know how that could have happened. But in the textbooks for the children, we, we make it very simple so that they won't be confused. And we make sure they believe, and we have little pictures and graphs. And we tell them to think critically about it. Think critically. Nothing became something. Critically, critically, we would immediately throw that idea out. And think critically, nothing becomes something. Think critically, non-life becomes life. These are things that we would say, no, this cannot be. And so the reality is, we are not talking about science here. He says himself, this is Fred Hoyle, he said, of adherence of biological evolution, things evolving. Hoyle said that he was at a loss to understand their widespread compulsion to deny what seems to me to be obvious. To make that simple for translation, he just said to me, he just said simple. It's, it's as if these people are just denying what is obvious, that these things could happen. So that's a reality. New York Times said time ago, some time ago, everything about the origin of life on earth is a mystery. And it seems the more that is known, the more acute the puzzles get. Meaning, the more we know about life, in Darwin's day, they knew very little about modern science. He, looked, he could look at maybe a little cell, and it was so simplistic to him, it's just a little blob. There's not much there to that thing. But today, with our electron microscopes and with the, our, our, our ways to look at different things, we can see the complexity which Darwin would have never, ever guessed. He had no clue how complex the simplest cell is. He didn't know. Um, I'll skip that one. You may have heard of this. They came out with a book some time ago, quite some time ago, called Darwin's Black Box by a man by the name of Michael Behe. Now, in this book, he talks about these things. Uh, imagine this is a bacteria, and this is a little hair-like structure that comes off the bacteria, and it runs like a motor to propel the bacteria through the substance that it is in. And it is fully a motor. This thing is it's like a hair that comes out of this bacteria. And what it does is it spins very rapidly to propel the bacteria through maybe water or whatever substance that it's in. The interesting thing about this, this motor that spins, this hair-like structure that spins like a motor, what they've discovered is it rotates at 100,000 revolutions, so 100,000 turns per minute. 100,000 turns per minute and it can stop on a quarter turn. So it's going 100,000 revolutions and whoosh, it stops, and then it can turn the opposite direction and go 100,000 revolutions per minute, the opposite direction. Now, the interesting thing about this, it's called, they call it a flagellum or a flagellar motor. Translate that, okay? Yeah, I'm guessing we don't know, but maybe it's the same word. I have no idea. 
So it's the flagellum. This is this, this motor with the hair-like structure, which is kind of the propeller for this thing. Now, Michael Behe, talking about this, said, all told, he says, in all, we'll say in all, there are about 40 parts, 40 protein parts, which are necessary for this machine to work. And if any of those parts are missing, then either you get a flagellum that doesn't work because it's missing some of the parts, or it doesn't even get built within the cell. So what Behe is saying is, we have this in, in one of the simplest structures in, in the living world or quasi-living world of the bacteria. What he says is, this motor has 40 different parts. And he said, if you take just one of those parts away, the entire motor does not work. You say, well, who cares? Now, evolution teaches that things slowly evolved, that an addition was made here, a transformation was made here, and slowly these things were changing, and they came about with what you see before you today. But the reality is, is they had to be done through slight successive modifications, Darwin said. They had to be made through slight additions, small additions, 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 until they became what they are today. But do you see the problem with this motor? How many additions had to be made? There had to be 40, and if you didn't have all of them at the same time, guess what you didn't have? You didn't have the motor. Now, this is fascinating. So here's just a little idea of what it looks like. You have, I mean, they, they name it motor-type structures. I don't know how you're going to translate that, but they have all these different parts, so we won't even name them. They, they have all these different parts. And this, this man by the name of Behe came up with a term, irreducible complexity, which means you can't reduce it down any further. It is complex in its structure, and taking away one piece of it will destroy the whole thing. It won't have a function. It won't do what it's supposed to do. Now, Howard Berg of Harvard, he said that the flagellar motor or the flagellum is the most efficient machine in the universe, and it's a part of a bacteria. Now, I want you to think about this. Notice what Darwin himself said in that, uh, you know, one of the very first books about evolution. Now, it wasn't the first book. It had been talked about before Darwin, uh, before Darwin came out with this. But nevertheless, what do we read? It says, if, this is Darwin himself, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous, that means many, successive, one, or, one after the other. So many, one after the other, small modifications, small changes, my theory would absolutely, what? Break down. He said, but I can't find any. Darwin said, if you could find one organ of any creature that couldn't be made by slow, small changes, he said the whole theory of evolution would what? Would break down. But in his day, they thought the world was pretty simple. And so they said, we can find no such thing. But have we found something today? Yes or no? The flagellar motor. You can find several other things that are the very same, that they couldn't happen by slow changes. Because unless all 40 parts are together, it just doesn't work. Do you understand the point here? So by Darwin's own words, he has told us that his theory is absolutely broken down. You follow? But you're going to hear very little about these things in class because we wouldn't want to doubt the faith. We wouldn't want to doubt the faith. We want, in class, we only want to teach 
the things that seem true for the theory of evolution. This is the reality. Now, I want you to notice this. We're going to go back to the Bible, back to faith. Now, obviously, have we been looking at science or faith so far? We've been looking at faith so far. The faith of the evolutionist, the foundation of evolution is a faith-based system. So let's go back to faith. The Bible tells us that you say, Chad, but so you're saying these people have faith. You're putting them down. I'm not putting them down. You say, Chad, what are you saying? You just live by science? No. The Bible says that we as Christians, we walk by what? We walk by faith and not by what? Sight. I'm going to share with you that evolutionists in the same way. Now, I want to be clear. There's good science, but evolution in, 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 in the whole, yes, there's some little aspects like creatures change. Yeah, they change a little bit. But they don't become, you know, birds, you know, you know, you don't see them becoming a whole new creature. Yes, they might have a little change, their beak gets a little bigger. But they're still a bird, right? And nobody's seen them become anything but a bird. Nobody. So if you believe that an animal became, came from another animal, you can believe that. But did anybody see one animal come from a totally different kind of animal? Nobody's seen that. So if you believe it, it's okay, but it's based on faith and not on science. But the Bible says, Chad, I am to walk. You, all of us Christians, were to walk by faith and not by what we see, not by sight. And Francis Crick, one of the top evolutionists, believes the very same thing. For an evolutionist, they must walk by faith and not by sight. He said it. He said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but it rather what? Evolved. Why did he have to say that? What he said was this. He says, biologists, science, scientists of biology have to constantly remind themselves that what they're looking at was not designed, but it actually evolved. Now, why would they have to constantly remind themselves? Because what they are looking at looks like it was actually what? It looks like it was designed. What they're looking at to them is so clear. This was designed. And he says, no, no, no. Don't pay attention to what you see. Believe the theory. He says, rather believe that it evolved. Do not look at, don't pay attention to what you see. Constantly remind yourself of the teaching. You see? Is he living by science or is he living by faith? He's living by faith. Evolutionists, they do not know it. They don't, they don't, they don't see it. And they would never say, oh, yes, I live by faith. No, no. We live by science and facts and so forth. But they have faith in each other. Meaning they haven't seen the actual study. They didn't do the actual study. And you're saying, so Chad, you, you're saying we can't believe anything that we haven't seen ourselves. No. But what I am saying is when we believe something based on someone else's testimony, we're not believing based on sight. We're believing based on faith. And I do too. I have faith. I'm a man of faith. I believe in faith. But let's be honest with ourselves. The scientists have faith. It's just the reality. Every, now, one of the things... Um, that Richard Dawkins, the greatest skeptic today probably, at least the most vocal skeptic, I should say, one of the arguments he uses and other, other people have used is what they call the infinite monkey theorem. The infinite monkey theorem. And it basically works like this. What they said was they're trying to figure out how life could have come about from non-life. And the chance, because the chances are so slim. The, this man, Sir Fred Hoyle, said it was, the chances were 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. Now, that doesn't even make sense. It's such a big number, so I won't even try to explain. But basically, and that's why he said, I don't understand why people deny that this, I mean, that, that it, I mean what to me is so obvious. It couldn't have happened. 
But think about this. So they came up, the, the scientists had to find an explanation how life could have come about from non-life. And so they came up with a, with a theory or the theorem called the infinite monkey theorem. And it works like this. They said, okay, because you have, think about genes. And think about, you know, you, they're, they're made up of building blocks, amino acids. And all these things had to come together and make a structure that could replicate itself. It could, you know, you have one and it becomes, becomes two. And those two become four. Those four become eight, right? You understand. So the structure had to be able to do that. Now, so they said, man, that's very hard to believe. But we need an explanation. How could that happen by chance? So they said, if you were to take monkeys, I actually took that picture. He's, he lives in Chicago. Um, but he, basically, if you were to take monkeys, that's an, you say, Chad, that's an ape. That's not very sci- No, I, I didn't have a picture of a monkey. I used the ape. Actually, I do have one now. I should have used it. But I got the ape because he looks good. But nevertheless, <laughs> so imagine with me for a moment. This is the, this is the argument that you put, you, you have a, a bunch of monkeys typing away on keyboards, like computers. And now they don't know the language, but they said if you gave enough time by these monkeys just doing randomly this, that if you gave them enough time, what would happen is they would type out by chance one of Shakespeare's plays. Just by chance. If you gave them enough time. Right? And you have to believe it because somebody said it. If they said it, you better believe it. No, but check this out. So now this is amazing to me. So somebody wanted to actually test the theory. So they got a room full of monkeys, and they gave them a computer. I'm being honest with you. This is true. They actually, the British National Council of Arts actually decided, let's test this out. Let's see how many words, if we stick these monkeys in a room. So they took six monkeys, they took one computer, and they gave them one month, and they were trying to figure out how many words would the, and they were using the English language, but they wanted to know how many words would the monkeys type out by random chance? Now, guess. In the cor- you guess for me. In the course of an entire month, they, they did. They were banging out things on the, on the computer. They said they even used the thing for a toilet. But nevertheless, a- as they were typing away, you tell me, guess how many words? Now, there are some very small words. Guess how many words in one month the monkeys typed out? English. Yeah, German has some very big words. They would have struggled with German, right? <laughs> now, guess. In, in the English language, we have some very small words. Two? How many? How many? Zero? Four. The answer is, this brother got it. And did you know that? The answer is zero. You say, what? Zero? You say, Don't, in the English language, you have the word A. You have the word I. They never hit the letter I. No, actually, they did hit I, and they hit A. But do you know what makes the word A and I words? You have to have a space on either side of them, right? You get the point. In an entire month, they never, even one time, got one word. Now, now, keep in mind, I didn't share with you, but one of the greatest skeptics of this last century, of the 19th, or of the 20th century, was a man, his name is uh, Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew. He was one of the greatest skeptics. Now, he was in a debate with a man by the name of Schroeder, a Christian, about this subject. And as they were debating about it, they talked about the results. And they said there were 50 pages typed. How many words? The answer was zero. 
Now, after hearing all of this, obviously we talked about the shortest, I forgot all this, shortest words in the English language are A and, you know, you have I. But now as they're debating, this evolutionist and the creationist, you're going to read now what the evolutionist said after. This is actually what the evolutionist said. He said these words. He said, actually, no, I'm sorry. Yes, this is in the book. He says all sonnets, now he said the chance of them typing out an entire play of Shakespeare, no way. He said they could maybe type out a sonnet because sonnets are short. So he said all sonnets are, are the same length. They're by definition 14 lines long. I picked the one I knew the opening line for, which is shall I compare thee to a summer's day. I counted the number of letters. There are 488 letters in the sonnet. With the likelihood of hammering... What's the likelihood of hammering away and getting 488 letters in the exact sequence as in shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And what you end up with is 26 multiplied by itself 488 times or 26 to the power of 488. Uh, or in other words, in base 10, 10 to the And you say, what on earth does that mean? Now, so 10 to the 480, well, okay, I'll show you. Uh, in the universe, scientists estimate that the number of atoms in the entire universe is 10 to the 80th power. And the chance that monkeys would type out by random chance a sonnet, a short sonnet of Shakespeare, is 10 to the 690th power. So the chance that it would happen is way less likely than finding one atom by random chance in the universe. Infinitely less. Now, in response to this, this skeptic, one of the greatest skeptics in history, said this. Anthony Flew, who was the skeptic, he said, after hearing Schroeder's presentation, he said, I told him that he had very satisfactorily and decisively established that the monkey theorem was a load of rubbish. This is a great skeptic saying that whole proof that Dawkins gives is a load of rubbish, right? He's saying it's, it's, it's just a lie. It's not true. Now, they may believe it, as a child would be, believe the stories they are told, but it is not true in actuality. Now, we'll just go on. Anthony Flew, this great skeptic, actually has now become a believer in the divine. He now actually believes that there is a God. He, he hasn't picked a, a God yet, but he said if there is any religion in this world, if there is any faith in this world that is greater than another, he said there is no faith on earth like the faith of the man of the apostle Paul. He said there is no great writer and philosopher like the apostle Paul, and he said no great charismatic leader like Jesus Christ. He's not there yet, but we should pray for him that the Lord will make him, help him make that last step. He said this, though. This great skeptic said, my departure or my leaving atheism was not occasioned by any new phenomenon or argument, meaning no new argument totally changed me. He said, over the last two decades, over the last 20 years, my whole framework of thought has been in this state, in the state of migration. He said, this was a consequence of my continuing assessment of the evidence of nature. He said, he said, Listen, the thing that made me start believing in God is looking at what? Nature. The fact that these things couldn't happen by chance. There had to be a divine influence. Check this out. He says, when I came to recognize the existence of a God, it was not a paradigm shift. He said, it wasn't some great giant change. Because of my paradigm remains. He said, as Plato in his Republic 
scripted his Socrates to insist. He said, we must follow the argument wherever it was. So this great skeptic said, listen, I wanted to go wherever the argument leads. And he says, now as a skeptic, the, I am being led in the direction of the divine because science seems to testify that there is a God. And you said, Chad, but that's faith. And I would say, exactly, it is faith. It is faith to believe in that. We believe there's evidence that testified to the fact there's a God. You say, but Chad, that's faith. It is faith. But remember, the evolutionists believe by faith also. We're both on the same foundation But we're asking, which is the faith that fulfills the heart? What is the faith that gives hope of eternal life? And God gives us reasons to believe. Now, Roman, you say, okay, so he was believing based upon nature. Check this out. The Bible tells us that. Romans 1.20 says, for the invisible things from creation. Creation, they show us. They are understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power in Godhead so that they are without excuse. To, to just really sum it up, Paul said this, that people have no excuse not to believe in God because nature proves and testifies to them, at least to their conscience anyway, that there is a God. Nature shows there is a God. And you know, even Richard Dawkins would tell you that his conscience in essence, reveals this. You say, no way, not Richard Dawkins. In a debate between Richard Dawkins, as he was debating Lennox, Lennox was a very kind old Christian, not a, you know, angry, you know, Christian fighting him. As they were kindly debating, Dawkins is, you know, quite angry. He's very, he's very angry, you know. And so he's, he's going back and forth. But Lennox is a very kind, gentle, kind of an old, you know, heavy teddy bear of a man, British fellow. And so they're debating, and as they're debating, uh, Lennox asks him this question about something like, don't you ever feel the need to worship God? Something like that. I'm going to show you the response of Richard Dawkins. This was his response. He said, I think when you consider the beauty of the world, and you wonder how it came to be what it is, you're naturally overwhelmed with a, a feeling of awe a feeling of admiration, and you almost feel a desire to what? To worship something. I feel this. He says, I recognize that other scientists, such as Carl Sagan, feel this. Einstein felt it. We, all of us, share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexities of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos, the sheer magnitude of geological time. You know what this is saying? He just said, all of us, all of us feel the need to worship. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans? We all know inside that there's a God. We all know when we look out on nature that there is a divine being who has made all of these things. But then he basically ends this by saying, but I know that evolution is true, so I squash this. I, I crush the, the, the sense inside of me. So notice, he's not living. He is truly living by faith. But he's believing the faith of the evolutionists. He's trusting the faith of the fathers, those who have made up each theory and, and testimony of evolution. He is trusting it implicitly. And nothing will get in the way of some people trusting their faith in evolution. But my hope is that someday, I believe Richard Dawkins deep down believes in God, and that's why he's so angry. I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I don't devote my life to disproving him. I'm not like, oh, don't you see? He's not real, right? 
No, I mean, I wouldn't do that because I know he's not real. I don't care. But Dawkins has devoted his whole life to fighting angrily God. And he says, I feel the need to worship him. And I think that's why he's fighting so hard. And sometimes we fight God too because we don't want to follow him. Because if there is a God, which we all know deep down there is, then that means I actually have to live for him because he's my creator. You may have seen this before, that here's planet Earth. And here are some of the other planets in our solar system. You have Venus, Mars, and Mercury. Roughly the same size as Earth, a little bit smaller, obviously. Now let's look at them again. I hope I can, you can see them on the screen. There's Earth. Those are the planets we just looked at. And these are the larger planets. Pretty big, huh? You got Jupiter, Neptune, Saturn, Uranus, and obviously little old Earth down there on the bottom. Now let's go a little further. Let's see this. So now here we got, we got Earth again. Those are the big planets. And that little speck, that's where you are. And that right there is the sun. You're kind of small, aren't you? Let's go a little further. Now take our sun. That dot right there is our sun. You couldn't see planet Earth in this picture. This is Regal, and this is Arcturus, much, 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 much bigger than our sun. But let's go back a little further. This right here is Betelgeuse. I don't know why we say Betelgeuse when it doesn't, the word doesn't look anything like Betelgeuse, but that's what we say. So Betelgeuse. But let's not stop there. Here is our sun. This literally, I, um, it is actually one pixel, which means it's as small on this screen as it could possibly be on, on the screen, literally. And this right here is the star Antares. It doesn't fit in the picture next to the sun. Now let's go even a little further. This right here is Antares. And this right here is Mu Cephei. Now, you can't see our sun in this picture. We are so absolutely tiny in the scope of the universe. You know what's interesting to me? One, the man who is considered by some to be the most intelligent man on planet Earth, potentially, is Stephen Hawking. He's considered to be one of the most intelligent men on the planet. Notice what he says when he looks out into the stars of the universe. Stephen Hawking says, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet, on a small planet, of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred billion galaxies. So it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. He did actually testify that he believed at another time in a God. He didn't know who that God was. He just he made the earth and he left. But he said it's hard to believe that God would even pay attention to us because we're so small on such a small planet in a, in a nothing special uh, you know, solar system here. But I want you to notice. Notice this is man's thought as he looks out on the universe today. But several thousand years ago, another man had almost the very same thought, but a little different conclusion. Notice what we read in the Bible in Psalms 8, verse 3 and 4. He says, when I, this is David speaking, when I look at the heavens, now he means the stars. When I look at the stars, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you think about him? And the son of man that you care for him. 
When we look out on the stars, we know that there is a God above. God has planted it in the heart of Richard Dawkins. He has planted it in your heart. But sometimes we don't have time to think about that because we have our ears filled with earbuds from an iPad or an iPod. We're constant information. We're constantly texting. We're constantly watching things. And so we don't even have time to look up to sit and think because maybe someone's texting me, right? That we are spending so much time with these things that, that they don't matter for eternity. Now, I'm not saying never to text or never to listen to music. No, no, that's not the point. The point is we are filling our time totally up with things that are keeping away. Now, listen, people like Dawkins, they do think about eternity because he looks back on the history of the universe. He looks back on the, he looks at the size of the cosmos and he thinks about these great things and as he thinks about them, it makes him think about God. I want to encourage you to turn off at some point. I don't mean never to use them, but take some time daily to turn off your phone, turn off your iPad or whatever, turn off the movies or the television, and spend time with God and His Word. I want to share with you, there are answers. You're going to be in college. Maybe you are in college. Maybe you're done. Maybe you struggled with, with, I didn't know what to say. Maybe the Adventists, we've just never thought about this. We've just been hiding our head in the sand. We don't have answers to these great questions of the skeptics. Friends, there are answers. You can find the answers. There are answers to the objections. But the reality is this. We need to be willing to look to God. We need to be willing to find the answer instead of just going back to life with our iPad. Going back to life with the music in our ears. There are things in this world that are... Eternity is so much more important than just wasting our lives away with no purpose. God has an amazing purpose for you. And I'm not just saying that like, oh, that's what people say. Listen, God has such an amazing plan for your life. He has, we have a message, and I don't just mean Christianity. God has given us, as a people, a message that has to go to the entire planet. I was not raised a Seventh-day Adventist. I had never heard of the Seventh-day Adventist church. When God changed my life, I saw these things, and it was so clear to me. My family pled with me not to go. They cried and they told me I had joined a cult and I had been deceived and all of these things. But I knew, I knew what the word of God said. Once I saw it, I, I couldn't, what else could I do? We have a message that nobody on the planet has and God is calling us to live out that message. He is calling you to do something more in life than just get a job. God may call you to a job. But he has not called you to just be a plumber or just be a doctor or just be a scientist. He has called you in your work to be a missionary for him. Whatever God has called you to do, maybe he will call you into full-time mission work because we surely need it. We surely need it. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine God sends you off to South America to some tribe who's never heard the gospel. And imagine, imagine a hundred people live for eternity because of you. Imagine a thousand people are in heaven for eternity because you said, I'm not just going to you know, play with my iPad for the rest of my life. I'm not just going to get a job and have a nice car. I am going to do something for God. I want to give my life to Him. God is calling you. Maybe it's not to the mission field. Maybe it's here in Austria or back in France or in Norway or in Spain or wherever. And God's calling you to a job there, but there He is calling you to be a witness in your university, 
in your schooling, in your work, whatever it is God is calling you to more than just making money. More than living the life and then going home watching television and then waiting till you retire and then dying. What on earth is that? I mean, there, there's no absolute joy in that. God has his plan for you. I will tell you this. I thought I met a young man who was going into the ministry before I, was, before I gave my life to God. Before I became an Adventist, I met a young man who was working with me, and he was leaving work because he was going into the ministry, and I thought, that is the dumbest thing in the world. Why on the earth would he waste his life going into the ministry? And a few years later, the Lord called me. And I can tell you this, my life is way better now than it was before. I have so much more joy and peace. I love life now. Traveling around, sharing the gospel with different people. Sharing messages on how to overcome difficulties in life, how to overcome habits. Sharing the message of Jesus. Yes, sometimes I do the creation thing, but generally we're out sharing the gospel in different things. And the reality is this, and we have a message, not just, I mean, like, not just little bits of the Bible. God has given us a last day message that most of us, I can say, maybe haven't even really heard at all. God has such a message through prophecy. Why do we even believe in God? God has such a message for us. That if we will follow what he shares with us, whoop, threw him up. We have such a message that if we will follow it, you will see that God has a plan for your life that is beyond anything you can imagine. And I want to encourage you that if God is calling you to something, be willing to give up anything and everything. One of the worst things, one of the things I, and I can say hate, I hate to hear, is people come to me who are older and say, God called me to do his work when I was younger. And I didn't follow. I wish I was doing what you're doing. I wish, but, but it's too late now. It's too late. God is calling you today into his work in whatever line that is. That's between you and him. But God is calling you to more in life than just work. And I want to challenge you to ask God, God, what would you have me to do? I know you have a plan for my life. He has a plan. We have answers. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's beyond, I mean, beyond a reasonable, I have no question there's a God. I know this God. But the reality is, is will you follow God? That is the question. God is calling you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you that we could begin this first part about evolution. Lord, we know you have so much to share with us about your message for these last days. We have prophecy that revealed and prophesied that us as a people would come about. Not because we're anything great. Actually, we're nothing. But because you had to have a group of people to share your message and live your message in the last days. Prophecy has shown these things. Prophecy that has been fulfilled up into the 1800s. Prophecy that is being fulfilled even today. Father, and may we have a realization of what Jesus is to us personally the creator of heaven and earth, and the one who can recreate us. Thank you for your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Just one second before you go. Um, in, in about 10 minutes, we're going to start our second message. The second message, this one we didn't really touch on all that many arguments for evolution. We more just said what is believed, the basis of evolution. You're, you've probably gone to school and he heard some of the great proofs of evolution. And because we're only doing two messages, I don't have time to hit all that many. But we're going to just nail through a bunch of them. And you're going to see that even scientists will say, we know this is a lie. We've known it's a lie for 80 years, but it's still in the textbooks. And so you're going to sit in class and you're going to think, it's so solid. We poor Adventists just didn't know it's all so solid. 
The sad thing is you didn't read what the actual scientists at the top say, and they saw that the whole thing, this, this, this proof is, is a lie. And so we're going to go through these things, and just so that you can see for yourself, I don't have time to go into everything, obviously, but just enough so that you can see we have a reason for our faith. They have a reason for theirs. It's just not very solid. So we'll go into that in about 10 minutes. All right, we are going to get started again. And before we get started, actually, uh, I'm going to give you an email. Somebody just asked if, if we, you know, maybe could come speak at their college or university or whatever. It, um, I'm going to just share with you our, uh, our website and email if you have any interest in contacting us. Um, check us out. And it, our website is anchor, A-N-C-C-H-O-R, anchor, Point, P-O-I-N-T, no E on the end, P-O-I-N-T, films, F-I-L-M-S, at gmail.com. And our website is anchorpointfilms.com. So for anybody who wants to uh, contact us, the email will come right to me. If You, you can go to contact us on the website. Uh, you can just go to anchorpointfilms.com, and you can hit contact us. The, web, the, the email will come directly to me. So um, we're going to get started with our second presentation now. This one is, to be honest with you guys, I'm, cram I'm trying to cram together some information from four presentations or five presentations, probably four, into two messages. So you're not getting the entire messages. There's more you know, on the information in the back or whatever. But this is just, this is kind of going to be a little jumpy. One of the brothers pointed out, and I am thank him for his point, he said that uh, Anthony Flew, I didn't realize he's dead. The, the man who uh, started believing in God, he is dead now. So correction on that. Praying for him won't do any good at this point. Uh, hopefully, I don't know what happened. Hopefully he gave his life to the Lord. I have no idea. So hopefully. Uh, and another point is that uh, when, um, what was it? When, when, what's his name? Name slipping my mind. The guy who coined the term the Big Bang. Uh, Hoyle, Hoyle. Uh, that he was specifically in reference to 10 to the power of, uh, 1 in 10 to the power of, uh, what was it, 40,000? That was just specifically talking about life from non-life. So, correction there. But let's go on now, and let's just begin with a quick word of prayer. Father, I pray that your blessing would be upon us. I know that I speak fast sometimes. I pray that you'll help me to do it slow enough. Uh that it can be translated, but also fast enough that we can make it through the material. And I pray that you will give the gift of interpretation to the interpreters or to those who maybe don't know English. It's not their first language, and some of this is technical terminology. I pray that you'll give the gift of interpretation here so that we can have enough uh, to strengthen our faith in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, just, just a question, you know, obviously talking about the age of the earth. I'm not going into everything about this. I will hit a few points on the age of the earth. One of the questions is, how old are the continents? How old are the continents? Now, according to evolution, the continents are about 2.5 billion years old. Now, not the earth. Earth is, they believe, like 4.6 billion years old. So, 2.5 billion years old. The continents, that means, you know, like Europe, North America, South America, so forth. Um, the thing is, we have something that's always taking place, and that's called erosion. You know, you got wind and water eroding. So the continents are basically like being washed away, right? Does that make sense? Washed into the ocean. And the trouble with this is, 
there's a rate at which they're washing away. They say they're like 2.6 billion years old, but the trouble is that the average height going down, reduction, for all the continents of the world is 60 centimeters or two and a half inches per thousand years. So every thousand years, the continents are going down about 60 millimeters. If I said centimeters, it's millimeters. 60 millimeters, and which equates to some 24 billion tons of sediment per year. So the continents are basically uh, getting smaller because of erosion. But what's happened is the problem has been highlighted by a number of geologists who calculated that North America should have been leveled in 10 million years if erosion has continued at the average rate. So the point being, if you just look at the facts, the continents, or many of them, shouldn't even be here after 10 million years. You say, Chad, 10 million years is a lot longer than how old the Earth is supposed to be to a creationist, some maybe six plus thousand years old. But think about this, 2.6 billion years old, the continents are supposed to be, but within 10 million, they would be gone. They'd be in the ocean. So it doesn't fit very well with the theory. So if you just begin to look at some facts, but my point being is this. Here's just a general idea of a creationist perspective and an evolutionary perspective. That a creationist perspective is that the Earth is probably a little older than 6,000 years. Just a little bit older than 6,000 years. We don't know exactly. That roughly, I'm not saying exact, roughly 4,400 years ago, there was a flood. Roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth and died for our sins. And here we are today, in 2012, waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Now, the evolutionary timeline is much, much different. It starts about 14 to 20 billion years ago. Remember what there was about 14 billion years ago? There was nothing, according to the teaching. Nothing. And then it exploded. What exploded? Nothing, right? Nothing exploded. And then it began to shoot off hydrogen and helium, and they, they somehow gathered together. Now, if you shoot off into a vacuum or into space hydrogen, does it normally gather together in groups? No, it doesn't. What does it do? It dissipates. But some, some reason, because of a mystical theory of evolution, the hydrogen and the helium gathered together into stars by chance, right? They would make up terms as to why that happened, glucons and other kinds of things. They would make up terminology to prove the point, obviously, but it doesn't prove anything. But nevertheless, 4. billion years ago, uh, the Earth cooled down, according to the theory, or at least the Earth was you know, maybe in its formation state. And about 3 million years ago, I mean, give or take, that's when man evolved. You know? So this, this is the theory. Very, two very different theories. Now, so you say, okay, so the, the creationist perspective, and we can tell just by looking at the ages of people in the Bible, that the earth is probably just a little bit older than 6,000 years. We don't know exactly. Now, notice this. But the evolutionists say, but we have proof that the earth is much older than that. So let's look at one of the proofs here. One of the proofs comes, uh, is in a laboratory in Denver, Colorado, in the United States. It's a big laboratory. I won't name it all, but in, in this, it's a giant freezer. And in this giant freezer, they took, these, they took big drills from Greenland. They went over to Greenland, and they drilled big holes into the ground, into the snow and ice. And what they did is they pulled these chunks of ice, these cylinders of ice, out of the ground. And what they've looked, and I kind of added the picture here, so this is fake, but what, there's a bunch of lines we can't see because the picture isn't very good, but there's light, dark, light, dark, light, dark. Now, the... 
the evolutionists call these annual rings. Because in the winter, there's a bunch of snow and it's white. And then in the summer, it starts to melt and it gets dirty, so it becomes dark. dark. Oh, pretty good. And then, and then the winter comes again, and then there's a light and a dark and so forth and so on. And they say, you, you, know, you believe the earth is maybe 6,000 years old. Ha, ha, ha. We have, the, in, in some of the deepest holes we we've dug, we see uh, something like 135,000 of these rings, which means at least 135,000 years. And you sit in your class in geology, and you think, we don't have any answer. We're lost. We poor Adventists are just hiding our heads in the sand. The Christians just don't think about these things. Or is it the, the evolutionists haven't studied the facts of nature? That's the question. So sometimes you'll hear a good observation, like there's 135,000 rings, and you'll make a bad conclusion. Does that make sense? You say, well, how, prove it. Okay, it's very simple. Basically, they call the light section summer. They call the dark sections winter. Or, uh, vice versa, actually. It's the opposite. Uh, it's um, summer. Summer is the, is the dark section. Winter is the light section. So you have light, dark, light, dark, light, dark. You see, but these scientists did not know about the lost squadron. Now, the lost squadron were some American fighter planes that were being sent over to Europe at the Second World War. They ended up flying them over to Greenland as they were going to make their way over to more of uh, maybe Britain and so forth. And so as they were flying over, they landed them in Greenland, but they just ended up leaving them there. America does a great job of making a lot of military stuff and throwing it away. We have a lot of military stuff, obviously. We, we just build it all the time. We have a whole industry for that. Um, never mind. Let's go on. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but now, so they leave these planes there, and this guy got the idea literally a few years ago, several years ago, and he said, well, let's go back in the, I think it was in the 90s, he said, let's go back and just take the planes, we can maybe brush the, the snow off the wings and take them back home. Well, he got to Greenland and he couldn't find them because they were under the snow. They were under the ice. Actually, they were so far under the ice, they had to use ground-penetrating radar to find them. They ended up finding them and they discovered that they were 75 meters under the ice. 75 meters in 48 years. That's a lot of snow and ice, don't you think? Now, one of those men who went and dug them out, they actually went and dug them out of the snow and the ice. So, and here's a, here's a picture of it. They literally were lowering themselves down. And I don't know how well you can see it, but there's lines all the way down. Dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light. What do the scientists call those? They call them annual rings. What does annual mean? One year. One year. So year rings. So when you see the light dark, you know you have one year. Now, that's what you think you have. Now think about this. this. So this a creationist went to one of these men who went and actually and dug them up, and he asked them, he said, when you went down into the holes, did you see dark light, dark light layers as you went down? Did you see annual rings as you went down? And he said, yes, I did. He said, how many did you see? He said, many hundreds of layers. How many years was it? 48 years, and there were how many layers? Many hundreds of layers of what? Annual rings. How do you have many hundreds of years in 48 years? Something must be wrong with the scientist's observation. No, the observation, no, that's not the problem. They saw it accurately. There were 135,000 rings in the deepest hole. But the question is, is it one ring, one dark light every year? 
Now, the answer is absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Anybody who's lived in a very cold climate can tell you that you can see within maybe a month several different layers of snow in one month. Dark light, dark light, dark light. I've seen it myself. I took this picture. I was over in California, up in the mountains, and here we had, I took this picture. You have in one year, this is one year snow, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven annual rings. Seven years of snow. How many years of snow was it? One. And you can get many more than this. This is just one example I saw on the side of the road. So do you see? See, what happens is we sit in class and we, we, we have this, we used to have a radio program in the United States. It was called the rest of the story. You get part of the story, but then you later get to find out the rest of the story. And in science class, you get to hear what they have carefully crafted for you to hear. You get only what they want you to hear. Now, I don't mean that they're all a bunch of deceivers, but we're going to see that some of them are because some of them know that the things they teach are lies and they even say it. We're going to see that. At least somebody at the top knows, and they're not correcting it in the textbooks for 80 years. Somebody should have corrected it after 80 years, wouldn't you say? I mean, I understand a few years, but 80 years? Come on now. Now, so we can see that these annual rings are not annual rings at all. They're just warm, cold, warm, cold, warm, cold. You can get several of those in a week. Or in a month, no problem. So let's go on. What about stalactites? We're told that stalactites, you know, they grow in caves. We, we've been told that these things take how long to grow? Well, it's different for each one, but they take millions and millions of years, right? Just like every, you know, uh, every documentary begins millions and millions of years ago, right? Have you heard that? Millions and millions of years ago when the dinosaur roamed the earth, you know, these kind of things. Now, is this true? Did they see that? Did they see that or did they just believe it? That would be faith. But let's go a little further. Now, does it take millions of years for stalactites to grow? Right here, they call this New Mexico's Unfinished Symphony. It was started 250 million years ago. It took 250, years, 250 million years to grow the stalactites according to the present rate. Okay. But the question is, has it always been that dry in New Mexico for 250 million years? When there's more water added, they grow extremely fast. And I'm going to show you in just a second. Give you an example. The Lincoln Memorial, which was built in 1922, has these stalactites growing under it. 1922. How many millions of years did it take them? It took them less than 100. Actually, this picture was taken in the 60s. This is less than 40 years later. You have several feet long stalactites growing. You have, this is a, uh, you know, on the ground, they're called stalagmites. When they're on the ground, you know, they drip from the top, they come on the ground, and then you have the spike growing out of the ground, seemingly. Um, this one had a bat. You know what a bat is? The little flying creature of the cave. You know those? Well, basically, it had a bat that had fallen on the stalagmite, and it was covered with flowstone, and it was covered... You can still see it there. Now, don't you think the body would have rotted in a few million years? It didn't rot. They can grow very, very rapidly if there is enough water. So if it was, there was more water 100 years ago, they could grow very rapidly. I, had a, I wish I, had, I would have stuck it in. I have another picture of just massive stalactites that grew within 100 years. I mean, just massive ones, but I pulled it out for time's sake. But I should, now that I talked about it, I could have left it in. All right, so notice... This right here is in Yellowstone in the United States. This is flowstone. Basically, there was this little water coming out of the ground like a little spring. So the water was coming out, and this guy took a pipe, a metal pipe, and went and stuck it in there. So the water was forced up out of the pipe. 
And so it began to come down, and look what it made. This is not, this is not what, this is all, yeah, water's coming down on it, but this is all rock, and this, have, this is a hundred-year-old flowstone. How fast did it grow? In a hundred years, you could have something this massive grown because there was enough water to make it. You follow? Very simple. Now, we are sometimes get the perspective that uh, petrification or fossilization takes this insane amount of time, or it only happened a really long time ago. We kind of have that perspective. I'm not saying that's the only teaching, but many times we have that perspective. Now, this right here is a log that is petrified, but does anybody see, what do you think this little thing here is, this little V in it? It is a, it is an axe mark. Somebody had taken an axe. Now, how many millions of years ago do you think they took the axe to that thing? It wasn't millions of years ago. It wasn't the caveman doing this. This was a modern man who had taken his axe and he had hit it. And within probably a few hundred years, this thing had already petrified. We'll go a little further. Can petrification or fossilization, do you understand those words? I'm not trying to be insulted. I mean, I just don't know how translation. Do you understand fossilization? Like dinosaur bones and, and trees that, that petrify? You understand those words, okay. Um, notice this. This dog climbed up inside of a, a chestnut tree, or an oak tree, one or the other. Uh, we'll find out in the next slide. It climbed up into a tree, and it petrified. And this is, this is a modern tree. It's not as if this is another picture. You can actually go see this. You can go you know, take a picture by it. This dog somehow climbed into a tree, and it petrified inside this, this, it's a yeah, chestnut oak, I guess. So it climbed up in there, and it petrified. The point is, petrification take, can take place very, very fast. It doesn't necessarily take a really long time. You say, really? I mean, how old is that tree? Not that old. And what about this? This is a cowboy boot with a petrified leg inside. How many millions of years old do you think that cowboy was? Probably not millions of years, I would guess. The boot's clearly within the last 100 years or 150 years or so, right? So petrification or, or fossilization uh, can take place very, very rapidly. Just to give you the idea, it doesn't have to be such long time periods. Uh, man, I should have left other slides. I just, this, I'll, I'll tell you one. I, I, I pulled it out, but I, I'm just going to tell you anyway. This, this lady, this is a true story, in Jakarta, and they actually, I think they had it in Texas also. This lady was pregnant and she didn't know it. And she lived in Jakarta. She couldn't have gone to the hospital if she wanted to at the time. And she, she had a baby. And the baby, she had a miscarriage, but the, the baby never came out. Never came out for 40 years. It fossilized inside of her. It literally fossilized. And they actually, doctors came in 40 years later, and a team of doctors came in and removed the fossilized baby. And that's not the only time it's happened. It's happened other times. The point is, they, they found that in, in liquid, which obviously there's a lot of liquid in the womb of a woman, and they've also found that people that have been buried in like you know, modern grave sites, in some of them where they have a lot of water, high water tables, what happens is as that water comes into the grave, it replaces the uh, you know, flesh and our skin, it replaces it with minerals, and they can go back within 100 years and they will find you know, like petrified human beings. They've opened, up, you know, they've opened up the caskets of these people and they've seen this. So these things have happened and they are happening. It doesn't necessarily take extreme long periods of time. Now we're going to go on to some of the other wonderful proofs of evolution. This is one of my favorite. 
Uh, the Piltdown Man, great proof of evolution for about 40 years. He was a great proof of evolution. Obviously, this was some time ago. But what we're going to see is they found what they called the Piltdown Man. And they, as a result of finding the Piltdown Man, they came out in the, in the newspaper and they say, Darwin theory is proved what? True. What if the scientists say we can prove that the theory of evolution is true? Would you lose your faith? Well, they already said it, so let's test it. So they said they found this man, and they talk about him, and they, uh, the New York Times said, Darwin theory is proved true. English scientists say the skull found in Sussex establishes human descent from apes. Notice what they were able to tell about this. They thought it was a woman, so that this might have been a woman, and the creature could not what? He couldn't talk. Now, you were deceived. I, I, you, maybe you weren't. Maybe you were really smart children. But if you were anything like me, you were deceived when you watched the Discovery Channel or whatever channel you have about history. Because when they pulled out these eight men out of the ground and they told you all these things about him and how he would hunt and how he would do this, you, just like I, believed their stories. Probably. Did, you, did anybody believe their stories as kids? You watched and you're, I did. At least one other person did. But a few of us did, right? Now, the point being, I, I would sit and watch these things and I'm just like, I believed it. I mean, how can I not believe it? These are scientists. They don't have opinions. They have science, right? And so, now, what have we discovered? Remember, this creature proved evolution true. It was a woman. It was a skull. And it could not talk. Well, you know what they discovered? They discovered it was half man, half ape. They discovered what was called later the Great Piltdown Hoax. What happened was this scientist, for more than 40 years people believed in the Piltdown Man, but what ended up happening was they, they literally, they took the skull of a human being and they took the jawbone of an ape and they filed the jawbone down and they put them together and they buried them in the ground. Actually, first they took acid to make it look old. They buried it in the ground and they... They discovered the great Piltdown man that, notice what it said, proved the theory of evolution. And imagine how many Christians lost their faith as a result of evolution being proved true. And later on, we discovered that it was nothing but a fake. Now, let me ask you a question. If, if you're just into science, why do you need to fake it? Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying the majority of scientists are this shameful. The majority of them are probably trying to be as honest as possible. They're biased because we're all biased. But they're trying to be legitimate. But if it's so clear, why would you have to fake it? You, you follow? You say, yeah, but they found others. They have. I'll show you another one. Actually, uh, I won't read it all, but they basically they say the scientists, not, not the creationists, the scientists finally discovered this thing was a fake. The scientists discovered it. But let's go look at some more what they call science, okay? Now we're going to look at my favorite uh, caveman from the past. His name, they called him Nebraska Man. This is Nebraska Man. Now, this is Nebraska Man. I, I, wish, I wish it was bigger so you could all see it in the back. Can you in the back see Nebraska Man at all? Can you see him? Right next to Nebraska Man is his wife. This is her. She's, she's more crouched down like so. Seems as if she wasn't quite as evolved as her husband. But now... What, what you don't know, the, these are the pictures they made of Nebraska Man. I mean, you can imagine the scientists who make these, they're very good at it. They're very good at sculpting out the bodies. They, they know exactly what they look like so well that this entire creature was built from one tooth. One tooth. You think a scientist could build me from my tooth? And how about my wife? Could he add her along with my tooth? Probably not, okay? 
Don't believe the silly things you see. Now, now you say, Chad, no, but they're, they're, they're being honest. This thing was scientifically built from one tooth. You know what they discovered later on? This, this, was, this was Nebraska man. This was another fact of evolution. They ended up discovering later, not the creationists, but the evolutionists discovered that it was actually the tooth of an extinct pig. So there you have it, the real Nebraska man, right? There he is. Now, you probably along with I, maybe you didn't, maybe it's only this young, dumb American who sat and watched these things on television, but I would watch these shows where they would make these monkey men. Now, they would take these skulls and they would wrap, they would wrap this stuff around and I would watch it and think, wow, that's what people looked like two million years ago. Wow, like monkey men. Now, the interesting thing is this skull and this skull are identical. It's the same skull. They had two different individuals make what this man looked like. On the top, he looks like maybe he's from, I don't know, Russia. On the bottom, he looks like he's from a cave, right? Now, do you notice a little difference in these two people here, yes or no? One looks like a monkey, and one looks like a modern man. Now, which one is right? You tell me. Oh, the second one. Well, maybe the first one. The point is, guess what? Nobody knows. Nobody has a clue what that skull looked like. What, what they're doing is it's called artistic license. Two people take the very same skull and come up with two totally different interpretations of what it might have looked like, but they put it on the Discovery Channel, they put it on History Channel, and little American children like me, and maybe European kids too, we sit and we watch it and we go, wow, those scientists are amazing, right? And we have no clue, but now I've just told you the rest of the story. That the whole thing is just a cute fabrication. That nobody knows what that skull looked like. Potentially he looked just like a modern human being because he probably was a guy that lived, I don't know, 4,000 years ago. Very simple. But you say, Chad, but what about the dating methods? We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, what, this, is one, this is Darwin's favorite proof of evolution. Heckel's embryos. How would a German say that name? Alright, there you go. That's better than what I said. Now notice, this fellow came up with an awesome proof of evolution. Uh, Ernst Haeckel was a German biologist. And his proof that he came up with became Darwin's, uh, Darwin believed this was the greatest proof of evolution. And what he showed, and I'm going to show it to you, is very convincing. It is. What he showed is that all creatures from a salamander, a turtle, a pig, a whatever these creatures, oh, a rabbit, a cat, a calf, and a human, we all go through the evolutionary process seemingly in the womb, or at least we don't really do that. We all look identical in the beginning, and this is proof that we, are all have the, we all have the same ancestor, right? It's very convincing when you look at the picture, isn't it? Very convincing. Now, what do the poor ignorant Christians have to say? Well, all they have to do is look at history to find the answer to this, this wonderfully good proof. What do they find? This is what Darwin said about it. Darwin said, thus, as it seems to me, the leading facts, it's called embryology, the embryo, the creature in the belly of its mother or in the, in the egg, you know, in the salamander or whatever. The point being, so embryology, Darwin said, which is second in importance to none in natural history. And what he's saying is, this is the most important proof of evolution, right? That's the most important proof of evolution. And you got to admit, it's pretty convincing that we all look, I mean, look, me and him, fish or salamander, we look identical in the beginning, right? Now, the trouble is, if you actually go look at what they look like, you find 
these are his drawings, and these are what they actually look like. Do they look identical, yes or no? No. You know what? It's fascinating. He was convicted of fraud for this. He was convicted of fraud, meaning they proved in, in, a, in a court of law that he lied about all this stuff. And then he said, actually, I wasn't necessarily lying. I, I mean, he didn't say those exact words, but he said, I drew them from memory. I drew them from memory, not from actually looking at them. And guess what happened? Here is, now you say, Chad, this is the creationist. You're just throwing these things in here. No, look, look at what the actual secular atheists or scientists say. Look what they now say about this. This is from New Scientist magazine from 1997. It says this, speaking, it says embryonic, notice what they call it, they know fraud lives on. And it, it, so they know it's fraud, they know it's a lie. And then it says a set of 1800s drawings, the 19th century, that still appear in reference books are badly misdrawn, says embryologist in Britain. Although Heckel confessed to drawing them from memory and was convicted of fraud at the University in Jena, the drawings persist. That's the real mystery. So the, the, now, how, how long ago was this proven? Check this out. This is amazing. Now, this says, this is from American scientists. This is not Christian. These, this is from scientific magazines. Surely, we'll call it embryology. They call it also biogen, biogenetic law. They say it's a law. It's a fact that this is true. But then it says, it's as dead as a doornail. I don't know if you have that saying, but it's as dead as can be. The thing is, they're saying, it's just not true, and we all know it. But it says, it was finally taken out from biology textbooks in the 1950s. And it was taken out of serious inquiry and was extinct in the 19, what? 20s. So when did they first know that this thing was not true? The 1920s. How long ago is that from today? Almost 100 years. We're talking 92 years, roughly. 90 years they have known this is not true. So you say, well, good thing they figured it out, and now they don't put it in the textbooks, do they? Still in the textbooks. Here's a textbook from, now he said it, they took it out of the textbooks in the 50s, or was it the 50s? Yeah, in the 1950s they took it out of the textbooks. Is that true? Here's a textbook from 1994. Still has it. Here's a textbook from 2001. And I'll bet you, you if you have a textbook on biology, you, you may still have, does anybody have a textbook within the last few years that still has that in there? Okay, at least two people here. This young lady told me she was in biology. Several people here. So notice, they took it out of the textbooks in the 50s because they knew it wasn't true in the 20s. So we can give them the 30-year gap of fixing their textbooks from the 20s to the 50s. But they've taken 90 years, and notice they have no plan on taking it out of the textbooks. I ask you why. If science is about facts and not about emotion, why don't they take it out? One, one, one creationist and evolutionist were debating, and the, the creationists showed that the major proofs of evolution are not true, and the evolutionists, in response to that, didn't say, no, they are true. They said, okay, okay, basically. They, they ended up saying this. They said, this was their response. They said, well, what do you want us then to show them to prove it? And he said, it's not up to me to prove your evolution. If you don't have anything to prove it, then give up on it, basically. The point being is these things are still in the textbooks almost 100 years later, and they know at the top, but you will read about it in class like it's a, just a fact, and you'll sit in your class, and you don't know the answer, so you sit there and you think, oh, it's true. It's true. And your heart is breaking because you think, man, we, we don't even have a reason to believe. There's no reason we should be believing the Bible. We're all a bunch of silly Christians believing in our fairy tale. But you realize it's just the opposite. They're all believing in a fairy tale, literally. 
that some guy made up, made up literally, faked the whole thing, and the scientists know it, but they don't dare to take it out of the textbooks. They don't dare after almost 100 years. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, the great skeptic, said, he said that the, these drawings, was the, they were the academic equivalent of murder. He's saying how bad these terrible drawings were. You know, we'll go on to radiometric dating. I'm not going into all the answers. Just, just I mean, there's, so, there's different aspects of, you, you know about radiometric dating or carbon dating. There's different kinds like, uh, rubidium, strontium, I'm not going to go into it. There's all different kinds of dating methods, but they're same, roughly the same principle. Roughly the same principle. Things, radiation takes place, and the certain amount of the elements change into the daughter element or whatever, however it works. But I'm just going to show you a great example. Now, according, according to the way radiometric dating works, when they are dating something like a volcano, a volcano, what they do is, they, they can, like for instance, when a volcano erupts, it shoots off the lava and then it cools down. And once it cools down, you can date that as year zero or the first year of life, life, the first year for that stone. So that would be the first year, next year would be number two, and then a hundred years later it's a hundred years, and a million years later it's a million years old. Duh, that makes sense, you get that part. So um, what they did was they wanted to test this. Now, the creationists wanted to test it. So what they did is they went to, there's a mountain called Mount Ungarahoy in New Zealand. And they had actually, humans were around in the 50s and in the 70s to see the eruption. So they knew this right here is the remains of the eruption 50 years ago. This is the remains of the eruption 75 years ago. We know it. People watched it, they saw it, we know how old, this is 50 years, this is about 70, I'm giving you the rough estimate, about 50, about 75. And so actually it was less than that, one of them was 1975, so it's even less, I'm sorry. But basically they were all within less than 100 years old. And so they knew it for a fact because they could see that as far as that's when they came to the surface. Now I want you to notice, so these creationists took samples and they sent it in, not to some creation group, they sent it into what's called the Geochron Laboratory in the United States, of, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the United States. And now this, this company is not Christian, they're evolutionists. And so they sent the rocks to them to see what years they would date them at. So they sent in different samples. They sent in samples from 1949, from 19, different ones from 1954, and different samples from 1975. So notice these, these are all within 75 years old. And so the dates that should come back should be roughly these dates, right? I mean, roughly. I mean, even if they're off by a few years, that would be okay. We would understand. So the dates that came back from the testing in the scientific laboratory, these are the dates they came up with. They said, well, some are less than 270,000 years old. Some are less than 290 years old. Some of yours are less than 800,000 years old. Some are about 1 million years old. Some are 1.2. And some are basically, you get 1.3, 1.5, and 3.5 million years old. Now, is that pretty close to accurate? No, it seems to be off by a little bit, wouldn't you say? At least off by a little bit. Now, I understand. You've got to give them some credit. There's always going to be a margin of error, right? There's always going to be a margin of error. The difficulty is their margin of error is about 7 million percent. That's a little bit off. So the question is, what if something were older, how far off would the dates be? It's a good question. 
The, the answer is, we don't have a clue. This dating method isn't very solid. The reality is, if you know how old, I've heard, I, I, I can't testify totally, but I've just heard that if you know how old something is and you test it, the dates are off. But if you don't know how old something is, they believe that the dates are accurate. Do you see trouble with that? That's just what I've heard anyway. Now, and somebody said to me, they said, Chad, but you don't see the problem. The problem is that this dating method is only supposed to be used for things that are really, really old. What? Let me ask you this. If I had a meter stick, you know what a meter stick is, right? And I say, this is one meter tall. And actually, I'm holding it up, and it's this tall. And I say, this is one meter. And you look at it, and you say, Chad, that doesn't look like it's a meter. And I say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is only for large measurements. Now, if it doesn't work for small things, will it work for the big? If it's off at the beginning, it's going to be off all the way through. You understand? Now, they, then they dated it with different methods, because they dated it with potassium-argon dating. So they did several different dating. They did potassium-argon. They did rubidium-strontium dating and lead-lead dating. And I don't remember what that one stands for. But they, they, did, they came up with different numbers less than 270,000 years old to 3.5 million years old. Then they came up and they said, with rubidium-strontium dating, it seems to be about 133 million years old. With this form of dating, it looks like it's about 197 million years old. And with lead-lead dating, it looks like it's about 3.9 billion years old. A little bit off, once again. A little bit off. The, and then people might say, but Chad, those are supposed to be different dating methods for different reasons, or this or that, or whatever. But the point is, you're believing in something that you've never seen. Is that science or is it faith? I'm asking you. It's faith. Now notice they got up to at least 3.9 billion years old. And once again, we understand. They're off by 3.9 billion years old. So once again, yeah, there's going to be a margin of error. These things were roughly 50 years old. This time, when you get up to 3.9 billion, now our margin of error is up to 7.8 billion percent, right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to get any better. Between 7 million and, and you know, 7 billion percent off, the trouble is we trust. We, you have learned, just like I have, to have implicit faith in the priests of evolution. Do not question the dogma. Do not question. You believe what you are told and have faith, and you will be ridiculed if you believe anything but the faith that has been brought down from the fathers of science. But do you see the problem? When you see the rest of the story, it doesn't seem quite as solid as we're told in our scientific textbooks. And I don't even say these things to make fun of them. I'm just speaking the reality. Most of the scientists, I would say, would not even know this. I'll give you an example. Uh, creationists and evolutionists were going to be in a debate together. And before the debate, they begin to sit down and talk to each other. And they're just conversing with each other about science. And the creationist talks to the evolutionist about about the dating methods like this, the radiometric dating, and he was telling him about all the, the, the errors that, that happened as a result of them. And the evolutionist said, I, I, that's not my field. I don't really know anything about that, which is okay. I understand that's not his field to, to know that. But then when he got up in front of the people, he lifted it up like it was a proven fact to everybody. Do you see the problem? He, the evolutionist, had implicit faith in something he didn't know very much about. And that's what they trust, that when you go to school, you know nothing about it. And they will teach you, and you've already watched the things on television like I did probably, and so you've already gotten your mind that these people have no bias. They just look for facts. 
And I'm, I'm not here to give you the perspective that scientists are all evil. Most of them are just totally honest people doing their best in the field that they're in. Most every one of them. There are a few people who seem to know that they've been teaching some false things for 90 years, and, and yet nobody's doing anything to clean up the mess. But the reality is, is you will be taught in school, and you'll hear, and you say, Chad, but you didn't go over Darwin's finches. We could go over that. We can show how that's a just, I mean, it's silly to say that that's proof of evolution. We could go over the peppered moths from England, and we could show how they actually, they, did you know this? You, anybody ever heard of the peppered moths from England? Several of you. Did you know that peppered moths do not hang out on tree trunks like that? They glued them to the trees for the pictures. They actually later, a Finnish, Finnish zoologist, Mikori, um, I don't remember his last name, th this fella, he actually studied to find out where do peppered moths like to reside. And he discovered that they're not day flyers. They let them out for the study. They got a bunch of them together, and they let them out of a cage, and they flew right to a tree because it was daytime, and so they just tried to go anywhere they could to get away. They landed on the tree, and the birds ate them. But then they actually tried to figure out, well, where do actually peppered moths like to hang out? And they discovered that they hide not on the tree trunks, but they hide in areas where they can't be seen. So the whole thing was just inaccurate. It just wasn't right. And they've actually, the scientists, the secular scientists have discovered this, but you'll still be taught it in your science textbooks. We could go over it from point to point to point, showing the errors of these things, and that the scientists, not the creationists, the scientists have discovered these things, but they will stay in the textbooks, I believe, till the day Jesus comes back. Because there's no better proof, seemingly. They'll come up with a new one here and a new one there, and some fancy words here and some fancy words there. They sure will. But I just want to give you the goggles. David, I was going to use that illustration, but, and then David used it. And then I, you know, I thought, well, nah, maybe I won't use it. But, you know, the whole the, the goggle illustration, that we have been given a carefully crafted set of glasses about science, that scientists have no bias, that they are unopinionated, that they only care about the truth. But you know what I found out? They're human beings, and human beings have opinions. And human beings have reasons for the things they believe in. Some believe because they don't want to believe in God. Some believe because they just, they've never known anything about God. Some have never seen the beauties of, of what the Bible actually teaches. And the Bible is so very amazing. It's changed my life. I, 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 like I said, I wasn't an Adventist. I didn't know all these things. And what, what I've discovered is the same thing that we can all discover, and many of us may know, many of us may not know, but why should we believe in the Bible? You're saying, Chad, you're, you're knocking these men because they have faith, but Chad, don't you have faith in that book? And the, what is my answer? I do. I'm not saying we shouldn't have faith. I believe we should have faith. The evolutionist has it. Do you see everybody has faith? The evolutionist will say, you have faith, I have science, but you just discovered the evolutionist has faith, and you have faith faith. Now, let me say something before I go any further. I don't typically, I mean, I'm willing to, but typically I don't do this for the secular crowd. I've, I've talked, you know, to different people about it. And now, I'm not, I mean, I will, it's okay. But the point being this, most evolutionists are so staunchly involved in their faith that they will believe it regardless if you talk about creation. If you just try to argue with somebody, you probably, you're not going to win them over. Somebody has to be open to learning more about God. And, and, you know, think about this. In biology, there's certain evidence for, not for evolution, but for biology, if you're studying, you know, uh, you know the flesh of a human being, or you're just studying babies or eggs or whatever, there's certain evidence that you would study for biology. 
if you are from another form of science, like if you are a um, physicist, you'll look for different facts for physics than you will for biology. Just for the good science, I'm not talking about the imaginary science, but for legitimate science, there's different forms of, of, of knowledge that you have to look at. And the same thing with the Bible. If you're looking for the facts about the Bible, you're going to be looking for different facts than just science. Why? Because it is an aspect of faith. But I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. God actually tells us, if, if you want to know there's a God, God says, I, I can give you a reason to believe. And he gives us a reason, if you have, well, I'll just put it on the screen. It's on Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. I shortened it down for translation purposes. It says, I am God, God says, and there is none else. Now, why would God, what, what makes him think he can say, I'm the only God? The God of the Bible says, I am the only God. What makes him think that he can say that? He tells us. He goes on to say. He says that he is the one that can declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I'm the only God. He's saying, Confucius, he was nothing. Buddha, you know, he was a man. Uh, you know, he, Muhammad, he was you know, a man who claimed to follow God, but he was just a man. And so you look at all these different things, and God says the difference between me and all of the other so-called gods is the God of the Bible says, I can foretell the what? The future. God says, I can foretell the future. Now, so he says basically, okay, in biology, you have to look at certain evidences. In geology, you may look at the rock and you try to figure out, okay, what is it composed of? And you find out it has calcium and it has iron. So you look at certain things there that would be different than what would you would look for in biology. Or in another realm of science, you're looking at different proof for that specific thing. And the same thing, God says, if you want to know, if you want to have a reason to believe, he says that I'm the only God and there's no other God. He said, I give you prophecy. Now, when I first saw the fact, you, you remember maybe when you were, in, you, know, you were young or whatever, maybe you've seen that statue with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, feet part of iron and part of clay. And you see that God had foretold the future of earth, Babylon being taken over by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia being taken over by Greece, Greece being taken over by Rome, and Rome being divided. And you say, well, yeah, Chad, but that's ancient history. But the prophecy didn't stop there. That's the thing. Then you go into Daniel chapter 7, and the prophecy continues. And then it talks about after Rome falls, roughly 476 AD, after Rome falls, it says another kingdom will arise. And that kingdom would last for exactly 1,260 years. And then we see the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, reigning for 1,260 years. The fascinating thing, you, many times people say, oh, you look at the prophecy after the fact, and after the fact, then you say, oh, this is what it meant. But the reality is that's not necessarily the case. There were people who were living in the 1700s because the prophecy of the Catholic Church begins uh, 538. And so as these men were studying this, they're thinking, okay, the prophecy, these people are living in the 1700s and they're looking at the Catholic Church, they're looking at prophecy and they're saying, the Catholic Church is going to lose its power very soon. They said sometime in the, in the 1790s, the Roman Catholic Church is going to lose its power. And guess what happens? Exactly in 1798, just as Bible prophecy had foretold, the, the, uh, Roman, the Roman Catholic Church, Berthier, is sent in by you know, Napoleon. 
he's sent in to take the Pope off his throne. The Pope is taken off into France and he dies in exile in Valence in France. Friends, the Bible told us all the way up until 1798. Then it said more prophecies would be filled down into the 1800s. Those prophecies were perfectly fulfilled prior to 1844. Then the Bible said that this power that had lost its authority would begin to garner and gain back its power and its authority. And we can see these things happening. Friends, God has given history in advance like a blueprint. You know what a blueprint is? When you're going to build a house... You have a blueprint to tell you this is what we're all going to do. God gave us a blueprint of history before it ever happened. And we can sit and we can say, oh, this is going to happen next. And we can see these things happening. And when I saw these things, I thought, this this is amazing. This is unreal that God could foretell the future of the earth like this. And as I saw it, I thought, man, the Bible is truly real. The Bible is true. I mean, there's no question. And so as I saw these things, and, and then I saw more, I saw that the, the Bible talks about several different things. It, it talks about, I had already believed, at this point I was already believing in Jesus. I had accepted it. I mean, I, I had actually always believed in Jesus. I believed in these things, but when I saw it from the Word of God, I thought, man, this is absolutely amazing. Now it's real to me. Now it's not just some old book that I want nothing to do with. Now it means something. And so I began to read it. As I began to see these things, I, then I discovered, I mean, I, I saw that we, we have a message God has given us all these things, and He has given us the opportunity, us to be the people, the opportunity to share His message with planet Earth. I said it last time, but I'll say it again. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your life. And God has sent His Son to planet Earth. You say, well, how do we know that Jesus was who He claimed to be? The reality is this. It's not a question skeptics, honest skeptics who know history don't question whether a guy named Jesus of Nazareth existed. Why? Because the history books. And you say, well, yeah, in modern history. No, no, no. Go all the way back to the days of Rome. Josephus talks about Jesus. Uh, You have several different people, Suetonius. You can look at several different historians in the Roman Empire who talked about Jesus, and some of them talked about his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. So the question isn't whether Jesus existed. We know he lived. The question is, was he who he claimed to be? Was he the savior of the world? And God didn't leave us in doubt as to whether it was him because the Bible had prophesied. The Bible gave us a prophecy that began in 457 BC and God said that in the year 27 AD, the Messiah would come. Then the Bible went on to say that Jesus would die in exactly 31 AD. And did it happen, yes or no? Friends, it happened. Listen, Jesus couldn't come sometime in the 1900s as the first time for the Messiah. He couldn't have come 3,000 years ago. He couldn't have come 2,500 years ago. The Messiah had to arrive to do his mission work in exactly 27 AD. And Jesus comes on the scene. Now, he had been around before that, but he began his missionary work in 27 AD. He died in exactly 31 AD, exactly like the Bible had said. God has given us, he, he's given us the opportunity that if we will, we will see this, we can believe in him. A friend of mine is a biologist. He's a doctor. He had the opportunity to share this with Richard Dawkins. He shared it. I heard it on the radio. He talked to him on the radio. And he said, he began to share this with him. And Richard Dawkins got his typical anger and said, I don't know what prophecy you are talking about. And he just, you know, went on to this. And, and he, he shut it up and he, he, he didn't want to even think about it. 
He didn't even want to think about, and the, the announcer, the, the person, they said, well, what do you say about these kinds of things? And, and he just, oh, I, I don't know what he's talking about, this or that, it's, it's, it's not true. And Was that scientific? Did he actually study it out for himself? He didn't know what he's talking about, but it's not true. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's not true. Can, can a scientist say that? Scientists don't say that. People of faith say that. God has given us reasons for our faith. He's given us his word. Now, now listen, I'll tell you this. I don't just sit constantly and study prophecy. I do do seminars on prophecy. But I study about the life of Jesus. Because the life of Jesus, he is my savior. He died for my sins. As I look to him, I'm being changed from the angry person uh, that I was to the person he wants me to become. As I look to Jesus, it changes my heart. It gives me fulfillment. It gives me peace. It gives me hope. And I know that there is an eternity that there is an eternity ahead, and Jesus tells me that I can receive eternal life through Him, through His sacrifice for me. Jesus died for your sins, and He's given every reason for you to believe. But somebody's saying, but Chad, what, what about the other evidence of, of evolution? Friends, you see, do you see that I've given you enough information? I, there's way more I could go into, we don't have time. But do you see I've given you enough information to help you start doubting the faith of evolution, yes or no? Would you agree there's enough evidence to say, man, can I, they faked some of that stuff? Some of the stuff they know isn't true, and yet, yet they're still teaching it? Maybe the stuff they're coming up with that's new now, maybe that's not true. God gives us enough reasons to believe in his word. But you say, but Chad, there's, there's questions I have, like maybe there's a contradiction in the Bible. I'll tell you this. When I first became an Adventist, I began to study with all different faiths, with, uh, with Muslims, with uh, Buddhists. I studied with all different kinds of Christians from Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Baptists and all different kinds. And as I studied with them, sometimes people would raise an objection and I wouldn't know the answer. And then they would raise another one, and I wouldn't know the answer, and another one, and another one. And it seemed like there was this great mountain of evidence against me, and I began to feel like, oh no, maybe we're all wrong. And I, I, I wasn't an Adventist because I love tofu, you know? I, I actually believed it was true. And so if it was not true, I don't want to like hang out and like, you know, eat the big franks, and maybe you don't have those, but whatever. I, I don't want to like eat the fake meats and all this stuff, right? I wanted to believe if it's true, and so I'm struggling with these things, and I, I see an objection. And over time, what I did is I'd study out one of the objections. And then I'd see, wow, our, we, our, our, the, the pioneers of the Adventist church, they dealt with it all. They dealt with all the biblical objections. State of the Dead, Uriah Smith wrote a 400-page book on every question you could possibly have about State of the Dead. Nobody would read it, but, like, it's awesome. Like, meaning, I've read chunks of it, but, like, it's so big, you're just like, what? There's that many questions? And then you read, and you're like, this is amazing. Our, our, our church fathers, they studied it all. They weren't ignorant about the questions, like, is Sunday the same? I mean, they, they studied it all. And so, I, as I've looked into these, I, one objection was raised in one, and it seemed like there was so much evidence, I was like, oh, no, maybe we're wrong. And so I decided, I'm just, I'll just study, you know, at, over time, I was studying out one at a time. Over time, I was, and I found, oh, there's plenty of evidence. Yes, this is truth. We have the truth. And then I find another one, and I say, wow, this is also true. And then I find another one, and man, this is true. And then the evidence, now this mountain of evidence that was against us that maybe we had never looked into, it had all been looked into. And so as I studied it, I found out we have a reason for our faith. Amen. We have reasons to believe what we believe. We don't have to doubt. Now you say, but I don't know all the reasons, and you probably don't, and I don't know all the reasons. 
But the reality is, if you're willing to know, what happens is the devil wants to make that mountain like this, the internet's full of it. You're wrong about this. And so if you go to the internet, you, you, you can just, if you only look at the skepticism, you'll lose your faith. But if you actually look for an answer, honestly and sincerely, you'll find the answer. If you look with all your heart, you'll find the answers to the objections. They're there, clearly. The objections against Ellen White, we've had to deal with those. Sure we have. I had a brother here from Iceland. I got some of my Icelandic friends. I lived in Iceland for a while. I had a brother come to me. He printed off, is, is Andre here? Adrian. Is he here? No. He, he came to me literally, it was like a stack, he literally printed off like the internet of quotes against Ellen White. He, he brought me a stack of them and he said, what is all this? And so now you, you, you receive a stack of arguments this great, big against your prophet and it's like, <gasps> what do we do? Now, I didn't believe in her right away. I was like, I don't know about this lady. Who cares about this lady? But then I started reading it. I was like, wow, this stuff is amazing. She prophesied different things, but that's not even the important stuff. Her, her messages of Jesus and in life and character building in the brain and the mind, I, was, I thought this is absolutely amazing. And it began to change my life. But nevertheless, so he brings me this stack of arguments against Ellen White. So we take the first one. And the first one said something like this. I don't remember exactly, but it said something like this. Ellen White said Jesus would return to the earth in 1868. I was like, what? I never heard that. I've read thousands and thousands of pages, and I never read that. And they said it's in Testimonies, Volume 8, page 6. What, I'm making up the, where it was. I don't remember. But So we're like, we had it on the shelf in our house there in Skridestekor, which was the street in Iceland. So we go, we go and grab the book. We have the book on the shelf. We pull it off. We're like, man, did she say that? So we open it up, and it says, you know, we start reading the page, and she didn't say anything about Jesus coming back in 1868. Like, okay, the first argument is a lie. So we go to the next one, and it, and it says, Ellen White said, oh, that the, uh, the, the uh, what was it? I don't know. We'll say, so, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah was before the flood. But the Bible's clear. Sodom and Gomorrah took place after the flood, right? In the time of Lot and so forth. So it was after the flood. And Ellen White said it was before the flood. She's wrong. And she said it in this book. And we're like, wow, we got that book too. Let's find out. So we grab the book, and, and we go to the page, and we find out. And it, said, it talks about, on that same page, it talks about the flood, and it talks about... Sodom and Gomorrah, but it doesn't say that Sodom and Gomorrah was before the flood. So once again, they were just being dishonest. So then we went to the next question and the next question, and we just, because the, the, we don't have to be afraid of the questions, so we just continue to go through the questions, and after a while of going through the, uh, the questions, he himself, Adrian, picked up the entire stack, and he went over to the garbage, and he threw it in the garbage. Friends, there's answers to the objections, but what happens is the devil gets you by you sitting, maybe even in your Adventist college. I'm not here to bash Adventist college. I praise the Lord for Adventist education, but sometimes you'll get a professor who doesn't really believe the message. And so he raises an objection here and an objection. And he's smart. He's probably smarter than you. That's why he's a professor. And so he has these objections, and we're all like, oh, I don't know. I don't have an answer. And you're just a kid. You just came to school with an empty slate ready to receive whatever they're going to give you, Right? Hoping they're going to give you the truth, but you don't always get a praise. Lord, we got some great professors, fantastic ones. Brother Fogel at uh, Bogenhofen and several others, right? But the point being, you may go and, and you don't have an answer and you start to lose your faith. I've met young people like this who have fully lost their faith in Adventist universities or Adventist colleges. And I'm not saying them to bash them. I hope that we can, we can reform and, and, and draw closer to the Lord and, and we can send young people in there who won't stand for this foolishness. And we say, listen, I will follow the truth. And I'm not here to bash anybody. I hope the best. This is the true church. I'm not for some crazy offshoot. There's no reason to start an offshoot. This is, the, this is where the truth is. But that doesn't mean everybody within the institution is following the truth. Amen? 
But God is calling you personally to follow his word. And there are answers to your questions. I sought them out on my own and I can testify they're there. The, the arguments are a good one. I love this one. This is a good, good anti-Ellen White argument. One of the arguments is Ellen White said that if you wore wigs, you know what a wig is? A toupee? Uh, you know, that covering fake hair? Cover your bald spot? She says if you wear a wig, you, will, you can go insane. And we're like, ha, 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 we know that's not true, right? We know that's not totally true, right? or whatever. You know, you know, so, so we see these things, and, but this is the thing. They've actually gone to doctor's records in Ellen White's day. And in Ellen White's day, they wore the same thing the British Parliament wears, those big bushy wigs. And in those big bushy wigs, they used to make them of a natural material in the bugs. This is what they found out from the Ellen White's time from the doctors, that bugs would burrow into them. And then these people, men, would put these big crazy wigs on their head, and the bugs would burrow into their scalp. And it says they would be going insane scratching themselves. Now, you can say, oh, she's wrong. She wasn't saying never should any human being wear a wig. She's just saying that the wigs in her day could cause you to go crazy with bugs itching your head, right? So the point being, some things you just don't understand, you don't have an answer to, but that doesn't mean there's not an answer. Do you understand? And same thing with the Bible. There's some stuff that you'll read and you're like, huh? What's the Bible talking about? But there's an answer. You may not know it immediately, but if you don't have an answer to your question, take that question Tuck it back in the, in the back of your head. Listen, find answers. I would encourage you to find answers, but if you don't have an answer to every question, you know, you tuck it away. Now I've found answers to most every question I've had about these particular issues. Sure, maybe one or two, you're like, I don't get that one. But after a while, you see that the evidence is so high for the truth, there's a few things you don't understand, but God can reveal those in his time. But don't give up on what you do know for that which you do not know. I want to encourage you to be in the word. I want to encourage you to study the Word of God daily and even spend time trying to search these things about Ellen White. I'll tell you, I, I didn't believe in her in the beginning, but it has changed my life. It is such a blessing. And I know it would be for you too. But I'll tell you, our creed is the Bible. Our doctrine are not from Ellen White. They are from the Bible and the Word of God. But she has messages for these last days for us that are encouragement, rebuke, and Everything else. Everything else. But God is calling you to be in his word. Is it your desire to spend time? I want to challenge you. I don't know whether you read or not. and I'm, I, Hopefully you do, whether you do or not. I'm asking all of you, myself included. Are you willing to begin at least for this next month to be, read your Bible every single day and spend time in prayer? Now, I do that, and probably many of you do, but if you don't, I'm asking all of us, would you be willing to raise your hand and say, I want to spend at least the next month studying the Word of God? Amen. Amen. Now, I want to encourage you. If you've already done that, praise the Lord, continue to do so. If you have not, I want to encourage you, take this next month. Tell, ask God, God, give me an experience. Give me something, and press forward. Press forward with God. Don't give up. He has answers to the questions that you have, and He's not afraid of the questions. He has answers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. I know from being in the same situation as maybe some of the young people that I've talked with this week that I've had questions that, oh, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong about this. Maybe we're wrong about that. Or, and having to wrestle with it and grapple with it and finding answers and realizing, wow, there's really simple answers out there. I just didn't see it. 
Sure, I don't know everything now, and, and we know, Ellen White told us, there's always going to be enough room to hang our doubts upon if we want to doubt. So if we want to be skeptical, there's always enough room for that, but there's also more than enough evidence if we have a heart open to believing. And Father, I pray that you would help us to seek you out, not just the facts of can I answer the objection or can I know the truth about creation, but to actually get to know the one who is behind all of this. The one who has given us the book, the Word of God. The one who is talked about in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And as we behold his life in those, in those beautiful word pictures in the Bible. May we be changed into his character. And also, Father, there's no need for one of these young people in here today to be lost. There's no need for any of us to make it to heaven and, and find out that our friend in this room wasn't, isn't there. There's no need for that to happen if you have, made every, you have made every opportunity for us. You have, you, have, you have made it possible through the death of your son. He died for all of us. There's no need for us not to be there. And Father, I pray that none of us will be lost. And I know you love all of us in this room and in this planet with a love that is stronger than death. Father, draw us nearer to you. Not, don't just make us, you know, encyclopedias that can debate people. That does very little good. But rather make us living examples of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC are supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.